Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Hi, welcome back to the 67th Annual ACB of Oregon Convention. And it is technically our banquet time, so our... So hopefully all of you guys have your delicious dinner and whatever you've chosen for your banquet meal tonight. And uh, but we're not going to let Dr. Hobie Wedler, you know, eat right now. Hopefully he ate <laughs> earlier or later. <laughs> so it's my pleasure again. You know, he, we a lot of us really enjoyed um, the wine tasting event last night with him. And I look forward to hearing him speak tonight. So Hobie, take it away. Well, thank you very much, Gary. <clears throat> thank you very much, Gary. It's a real honor to be here, and my voice will get better in just a minute as we warm it up a little bit. I uh, said last night that I've been dealing with annoying laryngitis. I was up at uh, Enchanted Hills Camp for the Blind today, if you know where that is, um, up in Napa, run by the Lighthouse Blind of San Francisco, uh, doing a, a filming of a video for the Capital Campaign up there. So I've been talking all day, and uh, well, my voice could be better, but we'll we'll see how we do uh, right now tonight. Um, my plan here is to to just chat with y'all for uh, maybe thirty to forty minutes, and then uh, open up time for some good Q and A, and even some stories of, of what you're all enjoying at banquet time. You know, it's difficult when we're not all together and able to sit around a table and share stories and break bread together. Uh, that's what I really love about banquets in in their truest form but uh we do the best we can virtually don't we and uh and i just hope that you're all cooking food that you enjoy uh, finding food takeout that you enjoy whatever you can do but the most important thing is that we're all together and enjoying each other's company and uh and really coming together here so what i've titled my presentation this evening is the power of mindset how positivity can change everything. And I'm going to use three categories to really go through what I mean about the power of mindset and how positivity can change everything to really showcase what, um, what, what I mean here. So as you all know, I, I'm a blind, totally blind guy myself. I was born completely blind. And uh, my parents were at first very nervous about having a blind child but realized very shortly after uh, after I was born by talking to several friends and people who they knew quite well that, you know, there's really nothing wrong. By the way, the people they know who have, um, you know, they talked to who had interacted with plenty of blind people in the past. So they knew from these people who they trusted that having a blind child was really not the end of the world and not a problem and that I should be treated just the same way as my sighted brother. And that was an amazing experience for me because it, uh, it allowed me to glean their extraordinarily high expectations, you know, and, and really, you know, respect uh, what, what they, what they thought. My parents taught me to, and, and did two big things for me in life. Number one, they instilled extremely high expectations, so they never lower the bar. And they literally as well 
also kept the bar extremely high for themselves and expected me to have very high expectations of them. The second big thing they did is they taught me to take responsibility for my own actions. That means that if I succeeded at something, I should take the credit for the success. And well, if I failed at something, it was my, uh, you know, I needed to take the blame for it, you know, and fail is a strong word. But if something wasn't to go as well, I was to take the blame for it. And, uh, you know, they, that put the mindset together early on, which was full of me not being able to rely on other people to use as scapegoats for things not getting done to absolute perfection. And if an assignment wasn't turned in on time, you know, I couldn't blame my reader. It was my fault that it didn't get done, which I think is a really beautiful thing. So I learned that I couldn't use others to understand and think about what goals and expectations I set for myself. And I've been around a lot of other people, blindsided, deaf hearing, you know, you name it, who oftentimes like to blame things that happened to them on other people. And this didn't go right. That didn't go right. And there's just all sorts. There's a litany of reasons that such and such thing really didn't necessarily go right for them. Where my big opinion is and, and understanding is that it's our lives and we're in the driver's seat at the helm of the lives that we live. And it's our job to make them what we want and, and shape them however we want. So to give just a bit of biographical information about myself, um, I fell in love with science very early on. I remember when I was three years old, and you, a lot of you may have heard this in, in other talks I've given, turning a water tap on in the kitchen to get a glass of water. It was something that by this time I'd done hundreds of times in my life, and it was, was a routine move for me. But at that one day, I still remember it was April 28th of 1994. I turned the tap on and thought, wait a minute, where's the water coming from to get this water, you know, to, to basically enter my house at my, at my own will whenever I open this valve. And that led to many amazing discussions with my parents about plumbing about how the water system worked and even led to a field trip. I called and made the appointment, by the way, down to the water resources department to understand how water is treated and how water is distributed throughout the city. That was the beginning of my scientific love. Shortly after that, I always used to enjoy doing housework and uh, would vacuum the floors regularly. And I plugged in the vacuum and switched it on and, and literally heard it roar to life and thought, so what's happening? You know, I plug a cable into the wall and this vacuum turns on and it's, it, it, what's what in the wall in this little two, three prong thing that I plug this vacuum into is making it come to life. And I asked my dad who works for the local power company, who worked for the local power company at the time. Uh, and he said, well, it's electrons. I said, okay, electrons, what does that mean? Well, it's electricity. 
So electricity is electrons. I said, oh, so do we buy electrons? And, you know, after we use them, do we store them somewhere? He said, no, no, they go right back into the ground and, and go right back into the system. So what is electricity then? I realized that what we're paying for is not, when we buy power is not the electrons themselves, but actually the force that pushes them through the wire, which is what drives motors and lights and speakers and radios and whatnot when we turn them on. So really what we pay for with electricity is not the electrons themselves, but the electromotive force or voltage, which pushes them along through the wire. And that's what powers everything we use. That too led to my sort of fascination with science. A little bit further along, I started taking things apart and putting them together and taking them apart and putting them together in a, in a way that I wasn't breaking them, but actually really taking things apart and thinking very deeply about where parts were as I was removing them and then sort of built them back up and put them, put them together again the same way. And um, through that process, realized that I have a love and appreciation uh, for how systems work and for a real understanding of uh, the way that, that, that things connect, either gears fit together or batteries go in a piece of electronics or whatever the case may be, or, or, you know, cover plates screw onto the wall and underneath them, you find boxes with outlets or switches in them. And those were very exciting to, you know, independently remove and, and then replace. And I was, I was an explorer. When I got to high school, I found myself with an incredible high school chemistry instructor. And that person really got me to fall in love with chemistry as a whole. And, you know, if you think back, I imagine a lot of you can think of how high school actually really influenced you and influenced your life and what you do and, and sort of how you go about it um, and, and maybe influenced your career even. And that's what this one chemistry instructor did for me. But it was interesting because the whole time I was in her class, she would stand up in front of the room and, and address the students by saying, you know, chemistry is really amazing. It's the science of how things basically work. What, the air we breathe, the water we drink, the food we eat. It's all chemistry, the light we see. Some might argue that's physics, but she argued that it was chemistry. And she said, therefore, you should all be really excited about chemistry beyond just a subject where we mix things together in the lab and more, wait a second, more, as a subject that we really, really can, can understand and fall in love with and appreciate. And um, I, pardon the noise, just had a window there. I really um, decided early on because of her that I enjoyed what we studied in that class and um, really felt passionate about the subject matter. But I would go to her after school for extra help or, or during tutorial or during lunch and say, you know, you, you mentioned all this exciting stuff about chemistry. I really want to study this. Can you help me understand how chemistry would be accessible to me? And she would say, Hobie, man, I don't know what to tell you, but you can't see. And chemistry is really a visual science. And I thought about it. I thought, oh, okay. so she doesn't think I should study chemistry. And I knew that I should be studying chemistry at a higher level than just her class. So 
I thought about what I would say for a long time. And it was the second week of the second semester of classes, maybe the first week of the second semester. And I knew what I was going to tell her. And I went into her classroom early in the morning before any students were there. And I said to her, I knew she was going to be in there. She was preparing for a lab. And I said, you know, you told me that chemistry is a visual science, but I have to tell you that nobody can see atoms. So chemistry is really a cerebral science, something we think about in our mind, something we study with our mind, and we use our eyesight as a tool to help us better understand reactions, color changes, what, what have you, in the laboratory. But overall, the overarching sort of benefit of chemistry is that we think about it and we do not need our eyesight to succeed in it. And what I later learned while an undergraduate in graduate school is that the visible spectrum of light is a mere 300 nanometers long out of a, or maybe 400, some people might consider it, out of a several million nanometer electromagnetic spectrum and even, well, several meter, I should say, electromagnetic spectrum. So if you look at an electromagnetic spectrum and expect it to be the length of a football field, what we can see in that spectrum is about an inch long of a football field, maybe even less. And that's really significant because it means that most things that happen, we cannot see. And in organic chemistry, which is what I study, most compounds are clear and we can't really see what's happening just with our eyes. So we use instruments with radio waves that are a lot longer than waves that we can see or feel in terms of heat. They're lower energy and longer waves to spin nuclei of atoms around in a technique called nuclear magnetic resonance or NMR. What's amazing about this is we use a detector because our eyeball can't detect radio waves. We need a radio wave detector within the instrument, which literally sees for us and then displays a spectrum for us to analyze, which is just a bunch of numbers that I can look at in any way I want. So the point is that the instrument that we're using to um, understand and glean these data that we that we think we need is um, something that we that we don't need our eyesight to use and understand, frankly. So to me, that's a really big deal and and something that's that's really exciting as we move throughout our careers is to think that something is as seemingly visual as chemistry really doesn't require eyesight and a lot of the chemical work that we do um, doesn't involve at all being able to being able to see and uh, involves relying on other equipment and the way that we present scientific data is very visual just by virtue of the of the field and so the hardest part about studying chemistry for me was not um, the means of doing the chemistry but rather getting my data from my mind back out into the literature, whether it be in a presentation or publication, or if I needed to focus on other people's work, understanding their, their work that was presented in complicated figures and this sort of thing, and using it to, to, you know, or using their work to better understand my projects and the work that I did. So that was really 
when I told my high school instructor that nobody can see Adams and said, what do you think I should do? She didn't have much to say and went from being someone who was a questioner of, is this really doable? Is this what you should be doing? To an extreme ally of mine saying, hey, you should do whatever it is you want to do in any way that you that you can and want to and supported my going to college and ultimately getting an undergraduate degree in chemistry that took uh that was on the shoulders of many amazing assistants one in particular who helped me all the way through grad school as well just an extremely dedicated amazing person who was um, right there for me every step of the way I just had to mute, um, mute my mic for a second I to sneeze um that gave me the confidence to, to, to study chemistry at the undergrad level. And at that point in time, I was a nerd. And I knew that I wanted to teach, ideally at the college level. So I was at the heart of a teacher. And when I say that, I mean, not that I, you know, want to stand up in front of a group of people and just profess what I know that they probably don't know. Like, that's not what I enjoy doing. When I say that I like to teach, I mean that I like to get people excited about things that maybe they weren't excited about or couldn't quite get excited about and create that passion that maybe people didn't know existed in particular fields that they might uh, might find interesting or, you know, just basically help to shape someone's career. So to that end, I, I really did love chemistry. And my dream with it was to teach a chemistry, a general chemistry at the college level. And I wanted to be that instructor who walked into a lecture hall of hundreds, several hundred chemistry students, uh, general chemistry students at 8 a.m. on a Monday morning, maybe after a long weekend of intense partying and playing. And you know, when people really don't feel like being in class, they want to be, you know, chemistry is just a pre, merely a prerequisite for them to do what they think they actually want to study. And I wanted to be able to turn some of those heads and get a few of those people excited about studying something like chemistry. I didn't know that chemistry was uh, was going to be accessible in graduate school. So I also got a degree in United States history. And uh, one thing led to another there. And I, I love history as well as chemistry. But I ended up meeting a uh, my graduate advisor in chemistry who would become my graduate advisor in chemistry who studied applied computation, who studies, I should say, applied computational organic chemistry, which is really understanding where electrons grow, go in organic molecules to convert one substance into another one. And I worked in this gentleman's group for uh, some time as an undergraduate, realized I liked it, developed a lot of best practices that worked really well for me, and ultimately, he mentored me and aspired me to study graduate school or to attend graduate school, apply to graduate school and ultimately get in and, and attend graduate school in his group. So I ultimately earned my PhD from his lab in 2016. But it was interesting because while I was in that experience, I had the honor and privilege of teaching uh, several general chemistry courses at the University of California, Davis. And what I realized very quickly at that time is that students don't necessarily speak chemistry. They like to see beautiful pictures and 
understand things through diagrams and see beautiful video animations and all sorts of things that, that they like to see, which meant that when I tried to explain things with words and had a few good notes taken for them to follow on the chalkboard, they didn't necessarily, maybe not even on the chalkboard, maybe just on a PowerPoint presentation that I would put together. They didn't like my explaining things in words. They wanted to see it and how to do it in action. So I ended up spending a lot of time and money in graduate school while teaching, uh, working with assistants to build absolutely beautiful presentations with all sorts of animations and pictures and videos and whatever they wanted to see, memorizing that presentation, which was also very taxing and took took a while Um so that I didn't present something, some image that, that wasn't accurate on the, on the slide that I was talking about. And I realized that maybe teaching chemistry wasn't necessarily the thing that I wanted to do because students also didn't read the book. They didn't like reading the textbook beforehand, which to me was a real drag because I always loved reading the textbook because when I went, when I went to lecture after reading the textbook, lecture felt more like a review than a first time understanding of the material. So that was uh, that was a big deal for me and a, an exciting, you know, thing for me to read the book. And I kind of assumed everybody would, but when they didn't, you know, it was it was teaching became a lot harder than I than I thought it should be, and not, <coughs> excuse me, not that I couldn't necessarily do it, but it was clear that it would take a lot more assistance than maybe I wanted to need to receive. Um, ironically, while beginning graduate school, I was a computational chemist, right? So my laptop was my laboratory. And by the way, we came up with many accessible practices for how we did chemistry in the lab. I wanted to do every project that I did in terms of research with minimal sighted assistance. Um, so I would say about 35 to 40% of my dissertation is write-ups on how we made my projects that I worked on accessible to me, mostly with the 3D printer and a lot of scripts that we wrote, you know, in the lab itself. And then about 65 to 70% of my dissertation, 60 to 65% of my dissertation was, uh, you know, actual hardcore chemistry that I, that I performed and did. So chemistry to me was exciting, but it was not something, you know, I wanted to teach it. That's That was my ultimate desire with chemistry, not necessarily to work at a research one institution, you know, getting all these fancy grants and writing a bunch of publications. That wasn't really my dream. My dream was to teach and inspire others through chemistry. But when I discovered that teaching was not quite as accessible as it could be, I um, pursued a field of entrepreneurship. And, you know, for me, this was really amazing because I had the opportunity while at the beginning of graduate school to, as I started my graduate tenure, to work with Francis Ford Coppola. His team called me and said, hey, do you want to work with us to design a truly blindfolded wine tasting? I mentioned a little bit of this last night. And when Francis Ford Coppola's team calls and says, can you work for us? You say, yes. And then you hang up and you freak out about what you just said yes to, right? So that's a that's a really fun thing there. But I I loved working with them all the time that, that we spent together. And I still consult for them regularly. Um, but what was amazing there is that 
mostly the hospitality only experience. The sales team got a word of it and got really excited about it being a special way to present wines in the market um, around the country, whether it be a new wine that they want to show a customer or present their you know existing portfolio to a really highly sought after prospect. This tasting was memorable because we would taste wine in the dark and just not use the blindfold at all as a gimmick, but rather use it to show how, you know, we can really do different things and imagine, pay attention differently, I should say, when we're not distracted by the sense of eyesight. And to me, that was super cool and super important to, to bring to light for people. Um, that got me into the food and beverage industry. I met a lot of great people and I since expanded the tasting to a numerous uh, variety of uh, foods, beverages, and even not even having to do with food and beverage at all, but as a way to teach high school students empathy by excited high school students, that is, by basically having them do high stakes activities, like in this case, turning wood on an electric lathe, where one student was blindfolded and they were assisted by one, uh, their, their peer as they turned wood pieces, basically square blocks, square pieces of post into beautiful works of art. And some of the works of art that our students produced under blindfold are some of the most beautiful that have come out of that high school's wood, wood shop, which makes me very proud. And it's really focusing on the fact that the blindfold is all about, you know, temporarily removing a sense and showing and demonstrating what our other senses can do and how powerful they really are. So that was... Uh, an amazing experience for me. And, and that led me to a career in entrepreneurship. Now, for me, being an entrepreneur is not at all about power and money, right? Entrepreneurship is literally about solving problems, using business as a way to solve problems. And to me, if I'm, if I'm lucky, I put food on, on the table and pay all my bills at the end of every month. It's not about making a bunch of money. I mean, that is a is a nice attribute if it works out that way, which, uh, you know, some of our stuff is, is really gaining some traction and is really exciting. But, you know, we're, we're not not to that point yet. You know, and it, entrepreneurship for me is just about about being the best possible person you can be and coming to the table and thinking of what is a problem? What is a good solution? And can we develop a business that can solve that problem? And if we can. Let's do that. So I'm a sensory expert in the food and beverage industry. I do a lot of work there, developing products, hosting experiences, kind of like the one you had last night, but many others as well. I'm doing a, a big tasting down in Ojai, California, which is Southern California, uh, for an investment banking firm out of New York with champagne and caviar this week. So it's, you know, whatever we do is different and hopefully unique and hopefully exciting for people. That's really the, the goal that I, that I try to portray in all of my work. Um, I have my own brand of spices now called Hobie's Essentials, and we're uh, very excited to be donating uh, one of each product to the oh, two products now to the uh, food basket that is being auctioned off, and I will ship those to the winner. So that gives me great excitement and pleasure to, to do that uh, for the state of Oregon. 
And, you know, it's just, again, the tagline of our, of our Spices brand is elevating happiness. I believe that we all deserve to be happy. And in many ways, we can use food and drink to basically create flavors to enhance the moments that matter in life. And that's my goal. That's my purpose is to, to just make life better for as many people as I possibly can. And really, that is what, what pushes me, what drives me every day in, in the work that I do. Um, I want to focus on, on three themes as we move through this evening and just take the last little bit to sort of um, address each theme, if you will. And those themes are mentorship, curiosity, and being willing to take on a challenge. The first one is mentorship. <clears throat> Pardon me. We all have had mentors in our lives. And I think we all will continue to have great mentors in our lives. What is so special about a mentor? In my opinion, Mentors see a future for us in a field that they are have some expertise in before we maybe see that future for ourselves. My graduate advisor in chemistry, uh, Professor Dean Tantillo, uh, saw the fact that I could earn my PhD and go on to do some exciting things in the world. And I was very daunted by the process of, of earning a PhD. It was a huge challenge, and I honestly didn't know if it made sense as a blind person to study and pursue a PhD in chemistry. And he said, just trust me, this will work. So a lot of creating great mentors is trust, trust. And we need to really embrace that trust of those amazing mentors and amazing people in our lives that we have. Um. The other thing that I think we, we gain from mentors is um, a sense of confidence. If someone believes in us, it gives us the ability to really believe in ourselves in such a positive and proactive way. I have a lot of mentors in the entrepreneurship world as well. A dear friend, Kevin Eastman, who's a business owner and entrepreneur, really understands where I come from, understands my story and believes in me and has helped our companies out a lot over the years. And, you know, for that, we're very grateful. We, he, he's just helped us. And uh, it hasn't been paid consulting or anything like that, but he's, you know, he's, he's helped us a ton, both, um, you know, financially and, and with, with advice. And it's mentors like that, that, that really make a difference in, uh, in our lives and help shape our futures and really understand that we, have a future and, and have an ability beyond the ability that we see in ourselves. So he believes that I have the ability to create a successful business annuity, you know, something that keeps on giving back. And maybe I don't see it all the time, but when he says it, I have to stop and think and think, okay, how can I work hard to accomplish this sort of thing? And, and really, really show that, that he's right, that, that, you know, that I can pull that off. And mentors also make us work harder. You know, they motivate us. We say, okay, this person thinks I can do it. Then I probably can do it. And let's put our mind to it and really get it done. Your mentors do not have to be older than you. 
They can easily be your age or younger than you. That's not a problem. Age does not have anything to do with who is a mentor. It's whether they, you know, if they see a future in you that, you know, maybe you don't see, they're a mentor. And if they're willing to guide you through that future, they're a mentor. So I want you to think about two things as we talk about mentorship. I want you to think about who are your mentors and who will your mentors become? That latter question is a really hard one to answer because we don't necessarily know what we're going to do next. And we don't know who's going to be there right there to be our mentor. But the second fold that I want to think about that is so important about an organization like the ACB, and frankly, I should be honest that I um, gained the confidence to study science, <clears throat> not only from my parents and from great high school teachers, but from the National Federation of the Blind when I worked in their Rocket on Science Academy and worked with 11 other blind high school students to launch a rocket uh, with NASA. So it was that opportunity along with the many blind and sighted mentors who I met there that inspired me to say yes from this chemistry class that I just finished, honors chemistry. Yes, I can and should go on to study chemistry at the college level. That was a really big deal for me. And I need to acknowledge their mentorship of me. So I want you to think about who can you be a mentor for? Who in the American Council of the Blind of Oregon do you see that is doing something that you understand and you know you something you have a good grasp on where you might be able to help them out? Who in your daily life can you help? Who is a student who you can assist? Can you help the checker you talk to at your local grocery store? How can you be a mentor and where can you lend your best self to help someone accelerate? When you have mentors, life goes on. We may choose to move on to other fields and those mentors are in. But in my opinion, once someone is a mentor, they're always a mentor. And we need to thank our mentors whenever we think about them. Thank them today. Thank them tomorrow. Thank them a year from now. And frankly, any time you think of them, that's the point of great mentors is they help us along. And then we let them know how we're doing. And in doing so, make them feel gratified in the ways that they were able to help us. So mentorship and, and being, uh, the power of finding a great mentor is so crucial and so important in as, as you move through life. And I don't care what you're doing. There's always a mentor out there for you, whether it's personal or professional, find those people. And you know what? There's always someone in the world who should be mentored by you. And that's one of the greatest joys I've had in life is giving back to communities where I've gained so much, like the blindness community as a mentor or the academic community or anything like that. It's all about giving back and, and just feeling good about those opportunities that we have to, to give back and, and show people that we care and that we have passion. The point is that, that finding mentors and, and being mentors uh, and mentorship in general is crucial, I think, to our happiness and success as we go through life. Next, I want to talk just, just for a minute, if I may, about curiosity. You know, in my opinion, curiosity is so important because it drives discovery. 
And discovery is what makes us excited, at least for me, is what makes me excited about learning. When I think about something a different way, I, I discover things about it. I'm, I'm a curious person. I'm always feeling things with my cane, going off my path, saying, oh, what's that? Then I'm curious and I feel it and I learn and I, I determine new things. Um, a, a desire to learn, <coughs> excuse me, which I think we all have in this world, creates curiosity and creates that drive for discovering new things that maybe we didn't know about. So if you are, if you want to be more curious, I commend you and just want to say that being a curious person makes me more excited about learning about science and art alike. When the water comes out of the tap in the kitchen and that leads to a field trip to the water resources department, water treatment department, right? That is discovery. I was curious about where the water was coming from and I investigated my curiosity which led to a discovery and a, and a research finding, even when I was four years old, but it gave me great passion and, and the ability to understand and think about and ponder, you know, plumbing systems. These are the areas where I think curiosity is just so incredibly crucial as we move through our lives and, and, and live and think and do whatever it is that we do. You know, when we're not curious, we sort of curl up inside, I feel. We go to a different place in our mind and in our hearts, and we just sort of become not excited about things anymore. And I don't want anybody here at this meeting, this lovely banquet tonight, to leave feeling not curious. So if this talk does anything for anybody, I want to remind you to remain curious. When you go outside tomorrow morning before you eat breakfast and you smell the beautiful, fresh organ air, think about what is it that I smell on the air? What is it that I'm, that I'm getting here? It drives curiosity. What, you know, what can I learn today? What can I think about today? Anytime you're curious, you will be motivated to learn and to think. And one of the best ways I find to drive curiosity is either to read or to listen to podcasts or listen to, you know, interesting television or radio programming. Those ways, you know, doing that and gaining information creates passions within myself that I never really knew that I had, which is really inspiring and really exciting. So whatever you do in life, be curious, explore the world through a lens of just wanting to learn more, wanting to suck up more knowledge. The more we all can act like dry sponges in this world, if the world were an ocean and we were a dry sponge, let's go out there ready to absorb it all, everything we can, and then think about it through whatever means that we can and, and learn and, and just be richer people because of it. Whether it's discovering that Snickers has an ice cream flavor now, or that, uh, you know, Plato was a great philosopher and understands some of his work. It's all curiosity, right? And it's all super important to, to think about, you know, anything that, that matters to you. And I know those examples are extreme, the ice cream example and the Plato example, but they're just ways to show how we can be truly curious and inspired throughout our life through curiosity. 
finally, I just want to remind all of us, myself included, to take challenges on and challenge ourselves to do things maybe we didn't think possible. I find that when I take a challenge, I work hard on it and I push myself because it's usually something I've never thought of doing before and never thought I could do. And when I'm successful at it, I get so much gratitude because I know that I took on a challenge that I didn't know if I was going to be able to succeed in. But when I put my mind to it and really drive forward with it, I'm usually able to able to pull through and succeed. And that is one of the most exciting moments of my life when you feel successful at a challenge because it just lifts your expectations and raises what you what you know you can do. But if you take on a challenge and you don't succeed, that is the best possible scenario because it's the one where you learn, right? It's the one where you learn the most. When you fail and make mistakes, we learn not necessarily to make those mistakes again, right? And it's a time of discovery and a time of learning as we go through those, those mistake periods when we're really not doing everything perfectly and, and, and faltering and failing. That's how we get ourselves geared up for success. Whether it's walking to your local grocery store and buying a carton of milk, if that's a challenge to you, do it. Or getting a master's degree or getting a PhD or becoming an entrepreneur or becoming a, you know, a, a community member, a leadership member at your local church. I don't care what it is. Take a challenge, anything that feels a little difficult. Think about it and think about what would make me feel good if I succeeded at this and then do it and see how that success feels. And I guarantee it will feel absolutely brilliant. So I want to close with, with a few mindsets that I've developed. And I even wrote an article, sort of an ebook about my five mindsets to overcome challenges and raise expectations. The first mindset is to not compare ourselves to others. This never leads to good things. You know, I did it all the time when I was in high school and even when I was in college. I remember comparing myself to a group of students in my organic chemistry class who always seemed to do a little bit better than me on exams, a little better than me on problem sets. And I knew they weren't studying as hard as me because let's face it, one of the things that we have to acknowledge as blind people living in a sighted world is it to be successful and to be relevant, we have to work a lot harder. And that's both physically harder and also more hours, you know, physical hours. And also, you know, mentally, it, it's taxing, right? We push ourselves and we have to, we have to achieve those, those goals and those milestones that we, uh, that we see before us. So, you know, it's all about if we let ourselves think that someone is better than us, we're not going to feel good. We're not going to feel positive. We're always going to be thinking, yeah, I'm doing okay, but they're doing better. And we could be doing 95% in our minds. They could be doing 97. That's still not good enough, right? So if we, if we stop that, and when I stopped comparing myself to these students, man, my life was so much better. I believed, I understood what I could do, and I didn't worry about what they did or who they were. I was just comparing myself to myself, right? And the truth is that when you wake up in the morning, if you look in the virtual mirror, if 
The only person you need to impress is the person looking right back at you. Don't be jealous if you can help it. And don't compare yourself to other people. If we think other people are better than us, we feel really dejected. And if we think other people are, are worse than us and we're better than other people, that creates cockiness and arrogance. And do any of us want that, right? No, none of us want to be arrogant, I don't think. Um, and, and there's no point in being so. We just have to be the good people that we are. Mindset number two, believe in yourself. If you don't believe in yourself and have high expectations of yourself, you will have a really hard time succeeding. I'll give you an example. I wanted during the pandemic to make a loaf of challah, Jewish challah, which is a type of bread that is braided together. And I thought at first, wow, how am I going to do this? How am I going to figure out how to make a loaf of challah on my own? It was a challenge. Um, It was something I wasn't used to doing. And I just started reading up on it. Excuse me. And thinking about and understanding. And I tried it the first time. I said, I'm going to do this. I believe in myself. Took me hours to braid this loaf of bread after, you know, I know how to make dough. That's something I've done for years. So I totally believe in myself to knead and rise and punch down a dough. I'm I'm a foodie. I'm a chemist. That's what I do all the time. But braiding the dough into a beautiful presentation was what I was worried about. I did it the first time. I think it looked okay. My partner, who's very uh, much of a realist, sighted guy, looked at it and said, yeah, that's a fair attempt. Looks okay. And he tasted it and really liked it. But, you know, <clears throat> he's never going to tell me something that's that's not true. When I tried it the next time, I said, I believe I can get better at this. It was it took me about the 10th the time that it did the first time to braid it and, and make it look even better. And now I'm an avid hala uh, producer and just love doing that. And it was all because I believed in myself. I could have told myself, oh, there's no way I can need, I can braid that nice loaf. But if you don't start somewhere and try and start by believing in yourself, you won't get anywhere. Right? So it's all about believing in yourself and moving forward with what you've got in any sense of the, in any stretch of the imagination. Next mindset is to take any challenge and break it into much smaller challenges. When I thought about graduate school, once I got in and accepted, I thought about, okay, I've got about five years between me and a PhD. Oh my gosh, how am I going to do that? And I started sweating and I started worrying and I started freaking out a little bit and almost having a little panic attack going, what have I gotten myself into? I'm going to have to earn a PhD. And I realized, wait a minute, Hobie, you're dealing with this completely the wrong way. You need to take this challenge of getting a PhD and break it up into minor, small challenges. What's the first challenge? To get through your first week of classes. Okay, great. I did that. What's your next challenge? To get through your next, you know, all the classes with decent grades. I did that. Next challenge is to do research and prepare for your qualifying exam. I did some research, which I thought was interesting, but I'm always my most, you know, extreme critic. So I didn't necessarily think it was great. But then I went into my oral exam, my qualifying exam, and, and people seemed to really like it. So I was like, okay, maybe I'm onto something. What's my next, next challenge? A lot more research before I have to give my public seminar in my third year. 
I did that. And then I gave that seminar and people seemed to really enjoy it. I was again like, wow, I'm surprised. And then what's the next thing? Do a bunch more research. So you have enough to publish in your dissertation. I did that. And then I wrote my dissertation. One thing that people find funny is that I would say 50% or more of my dissertation was written on airplanes because I was traveling so much for my food and beverage work. But the nice thing, as I said earlier about being a computational chemist is that my laptop is my laboratory. So my advisor let me travel a lot. And what's nice about writing a long you know, chapter of a dissertation on a flight is that there are no distractions. I would never purchase internet. Your phone's in airplane mode. You can just sit back and think and work and write. And that's what I, I truly loved and did. And then I submitted my dissertation. I got it signed off on. And after a little ceremonial thing, I was a, I was a PhD in chemistry. So I broke something that seems like one huge challenge into hundreds of small challenges. You know, you can't climb a mountain in one step. You need steps to do that. You need to climb slowly over time. Fourth challenge, be consistent. You can't get anything done if you're not consistent with it. And that means, in other words, pick something to do that you like. Don't challenge yourself with something you don't like or you won't be consistent. And I guarantee it will not feel fun or exciting to you. Next challenge is, or mindset is don't be afraid to fail. And we talked about this before. Be willing to take risks. Be willing to realize and acknowledge what's the worst that can happen with that risk. Take it and don't be afraid to fail. That's the most important thing. I'll say that again and again and again, because it is what drives me forward. It's what drives a lot of us forward in, in the lives that we live and what we do. Uh, and that fear of failure can be, can be one that kills us. So my point is that through mentorship, curiosity, and accepting challenges, and by putting ourselves in the right mindset, we, my good friends, can do whatever it is we set our mind to. And I don't, I don't mind whatever it is you want to do. If you put your mind to it and you follow all these steps, you will succeed. Make mistakes, learn from those mistakes, and try not to make them in the future if you can help it. But most importantly, be optimistic. Optimism allows us to find joy in the most seemingly joyless tasks. It gives us purpose when purpose is otherwise hard to come by. If we believe, that we will succeed and we're positive and we have that open, optimistic, abundant mindset. <clears throat> My dear friends, we will succeed at whatever it is that we do. And I just want to say that I care about you guys tremendously. I love what you're doing here at the ACD of Oregon. I want to thank Carrie so much for the invitation to speak tonight. And I hope this has been at least somewhat of a memorable banquet for you. I know I spoke a little longer than uh, I promised before. That's a problem with someone who likes to ramble like me, but I want to open this up for any questions y'all have and just say, thank you so much. Happy convention of the, the uh, Oregon Council of the Blind uh, for 2021. Thanks for the opportunity. Awesome, awesome. Thank you. Very inspirational. Hey, Pat Schwab. Yes. You you have a question? I do. The the Hobie, I, would would you talk talk a little bit about uh, what uh, the 
uh, contents of your uh, disser- dissertation for your uh, doctorate was? Oh, thank you, Pat. I appreciate the question. Yeah, no, we just, uh, like I said, a lot of it was on how, how we made the chemistry that I worked on accessible to me. But uh, in terms of the actual chemistry portion, we did a lot of work on understanding uh, a, a class of compounds called terpenes and terpenoids. So I wrote a whole review paper all about terpenes found, which are usually aromatic compounds found in both red and white wine and how those terpenes are metabolized in grapes and how the vine literally produces those terpenes as as the grapes grow. I did a project on a molecule that could indicate whether olive oil has been thermally treated or not. So one of the things that we see in olive oil a lot is that um, to be what we call extra virgin with an olive oil, uh, it has to have not been been brought above 30 degrees Celsius. And what we find is that a lot of oils that come into the United States are labeled as so-called extra virgin, but really in truth are, um, you know, uh, not, they've been heated and they don't have the same volatiles that true extra virgin oils have. Aeroid called 24-methylene cycloartanol and really understood, um, gained a better understanding of how that molecule uh, could uh, could create, you know, when, when I summarized, uh, would look like something different in an analytical instrument and we could tell easily because that that steroid is present in all pretty much all olive oil if we could detect it we could really understand whether olive oil has been thermally treated and some industries have picked up that paper and are using it in in their labs and that sort of thing which is exciting did a project on uh, a couple of different uh, many different um, mono and and, and biterpenes uh, that are relevant in the pharmaceutical industry uh, did a big project on uh hydration propensities of molecules that really love electrons that are used in uh, a lot of pharmaceuticals and so on and so forth. Also wrote a paper that went in the dissertation as a chapter all about the wood turning in the dark work that we did, as well as the, the nonprofit that we founded in the chemistry camps, accessible chemistry camps that we would hold. Mm. That's just a smattering. That's excellent. That, uh, uh, what role did, did your, uh, uh, advisor uh, ha- have in the whole process? You know, he helped choose the projects that I worked on and basically guided me in terms of writing the papers and then served on my dissertation committee to review my dissertation and uh, ultimately accept it. Uh, so he was he was right there to advise on all the chemistry that we were doing, making sure that everything was working as well as it could be. And uh, was it was a really good advisor. Excellent. Thank you. That dissertation, by the way, Pat, was uh, 967 pages, or as I say, 0.967 kilopages. <laughs> Very good. My, my, mine was a lot shorter than that. Do you have your, do you have your, uh, your degree in history? My, my degree is in, in uh, uh, educational planning. Uh, I've got, it's uh it's actually an educational leadership that, uh, uh, so so it's uh, it's re- really kind of kind of a, uh, a a different thing. And what what I did did as a dissertation on, on what it looked like for uh, effective statewide planning for a given process. That's incredible. That's absolutely incredible. So you you know the harrowing process of getting a PhD as well. Oh yes. 
Yeah. And, and by the way, the reason my dissertation was so long is because I published all my supporting information in it as well, because they made me. <laughs> uh-huh. Okay. Awesome. All right. Hey, Hobie. Um, well, what am I, I, I have a couple questions. Can you be too old to have a mentor? And if you want a mentor and you don't have someone volunteering to do that, um, how would you go about finding one? And also, can you remind me of the Oregon winery or wine that you talked, you talked about some Oregon wines that are really good. That, and one of them I discovered is in McMinnville and I can't remember the name. Yeah, no, absolutely. Nobody is too old to have, to have a mentor. Every Mentorship is not related to age. I know 90-year-olds who are mentored by 20-year-olds, and it's a beautiful thing. How do you go about finding someone to mentor? You know what you need to do? You just need to find an area that you're interested in and stick your neck out in as many communities as possible and say, I want to help people get better in this area. And you will find people who want your help. I guarantee it. And the, the wines that I think are really good from Oregon are many but I think the one, the varietals that I mentioned last night were Pinot Gris, which is a white varietal, and Pinot Noir, which is a red varietal. I don't think I mentioned names of any Oregon producers, but what I wanted to tell you all today is that I totally realized that Francis Ford Coppola is the owner of an Oregon winery called Domaine de Broglie, or as many say, Domaine de Bois. Uh, and that is a, a great winery right in the uh, Willamette Valley. And I'm not sure what town it is, but I believe it's just outside Menton, maybe. Awesome. Hey, Peter. Hey, Hobie. How are you? Well, I'm sorry about my hoarse voice, but I'm okay. No, you're you're great. And I, I very much appreciate your 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 thoughts. Um, a, a comment and then a question. The comment is um, mentoring is a is a wonderful thing. I spent four years of my life running a uh, reverse mentoring program where younger people mentored older people in areas of diversity and culture change. And uh, oh my gosh, a really significant impact on the way things happen. We need to talk about that sometime, Peter. Uh, yeah, well, right. But but anyway, I do want to say that you know, older younger people can and should mentor older folks, and reverse, of course. And uh, so, I really do encourage people to try to make that happen, to find the opportunity to mentor others and to um, to be mentored. And mentoring is not, uh, you know, it's not this sort of formal process by which certain things happen before something else. It's a very uh, generative process. So you might not even think it's mentoring necessarily. You know, you're having a conversation with somebody about something and and you or they share something that's really important that helps them think through an issue a different way. That in some ways is mentoring. You know, even though it's not a formal mentoring, you're you're, you're doing something that's that's really valuable. Uh, I'll, I'll give you an example Something happened to me recently. I, I was working with a, a praise band director, and I um, so we were talking about dance music, and she said, "Well, if if disco music is is that awful, how else do you dance?" And I said to her, "Well, any good R and B music, which isn't disco, will do the trick just fine." And for her, that was a that was a revela- that was a revelation for her. And I suspect that she'll rethink that the whole issue of of dance music as a result of that brief comment that I made. Um, so, uh, just, you know, just, you know, it's mentoring is not, it doesn't have to be this sort of formal process that, you know, that requires all kinds of things. Having said that, I, I, I don't think you talked about this, but I was really intrigued about 
the work you did to form that nonprofit that you no longer, no longer run um, to sort of encourage um, disabled folks to get into the STEM field, you know, science, uh, science, technology, uh, on, on whatever it is, math, whatever it is. Um, could you talk about that, uh, about what happened? And, uh, and uh, of course, I, I think you went to the White House and President Obama honored you for that. Well, I know I don't, <laughs> sort, of, sort of short of time, but can you sort of talk about that program a little bit? Yeah, you know, I just thank you, Peter. And I, you know, my whole thing is that I, I truly believe that anyone should be empowered and inspired to do whatever they want to do, no matter how visual that that career field might might seem or feel. So it's for me, it's all about figuring out, okay, what is it that that people, you know, so I, by the way, you know, had a great experience going through school, you know, great teachers, great parents, everything was fine. And I knew there were a lot of blind folks around me who maybe didn't have that same experience. And uh, I thought all along, you know, let's let's figure out a way to give other people this this same sort of experience that that I've had, you know, going through going through life and, you know, that I really want to bring out for for other folks. And um, what what drove the basically the foundation of the organization um, was this whole idea that let's, let's bring science and bring chemistry to everybody. And, and the point of chemistry camp was not studying chemistry, but it was really to show them that, that their excitement, whatever made them tick academically could and should be studied no matter how visual it might seem. So I worked with a few folks in the National Federation of the Blind, but also a few folks in uh, at the Lighthouse for the Blind, where I was today, actually, at Enchanted Hills Camp, and, uh, and started this program where we essentially hosted several annual chemistry camps for blind uh, kids. And we started with kids from uh, right around the area, Northern California, the next year, we had kids coming from Virginia. The next year, we had kids saying, hey, from Mexico, we, we need this. We want to come to your program. The next year, we had kids from Korea saying they wanted to be there. And all the while, we're just building these programs. And I never wanted to have a lot of students there. I wanted to have just a, a dirty dozen, you know, 10 to 15 students, because I want the students to feel a certain sense of intimacy as they go through the program. And, um, you know, for lack of a better description, we, we let blind students actually work in, in, you know, pairs or threes with blind mentors. And Enchanted Hills Camp is an amazing, amazing place. It's 300 acres of natural landscape, which allows for a comfortable place, a safe place for folks to do things blind and sighted alike that might not feel as comfortable as they could. And, uh, you know, one thing led to another and we worked with students from all walks of life, all ways of thinking. And uh, we actually encouraged them, but we did hands-on chemistry experiments and had great lectures from, you know, professors and graduate students and other blind scientists, mostly from Davis and, and surrounding areas. But the most valuable time I think is when we tell our students that they had time to hang out with their mentors, talk about reading Braille, talk about, anything in their lives that was sort of interesting to them. And uh, we encourage students to go hiking with their mentors. 
And it was fine with us if they got lost because it was their challenge to find their way home and, uh, and you know, find their way back to camp. And that really led students to, to great opportunities of, of learning their possibilities for success and figuring out what they truly could do. Uh, so that was, that was extraordinarily exciting for me to, to build that program out and, and put it together. And, and I like to think that in my own little way, I, I maybe inspired some, uh, some students to become things that they didn't necessarily believe that they could like doctors of physics and uh, physicians assistants and, you know, doctors of psychology or even bachelor students in psychology. It's like, that's, that's the dream is, is when we can shape people to, to heights they never knew they could be. And, and then we can kind of watch it and smile as they go and just say, yeah, you, you didn't believe this before, but here you are. Look at, look at you. Hi, Hobie. Desiree here again. And um, yes, once upon a time, I too, probably a good 32, 35 years ago, spent a couple of summers at Enchanted Hills and have very fun <laughs> memories and would really love to go back. But Oh my gosh, Desiree, anytime you have an open invitation when I'm there. <laughs> awesome. Thank Who was you. executive director when you were there? Mm, I don't remember who was director. I remember the cakewalk and the eggshells <laughs> and That's horseback right. riding and many, many other things. Oh my gosh. I, I will be emailing you to see when you're there. So yeah. Email me and come down and, and, and go to camp. Awesome. Okay. Um, Patrick, you can go next. Hey, this is going to be real quick because I'm next uh, on the, uh, uh, on the agenda. Um, but uh, Hobie, that uh, one of the things that I did when I was undergraduate uh, is that I did taught a cl class called History of Europe Through Its Wines. Wow. And, and, and I'd really li like to talk to you about that because it was really a neat class. A lot, lot of uh, pe people got excited about it. And, they, and then the school realized we were holding the class off campus and the school realized <laughs> that, I, that I would end the class and then we'd taste the wines that we were talking about. And and that uh, the, that they didn't they they said yeah we don't care you know we we they still got mad at me but oh, but, uh, but, but still it's shame on them but but still I got to teach the whole class that and that it, it worked out worked out real well so what I want to do is is uh, uh, email you and that we we can talk about that well I can't wait and I'm going to ask Carrie to kindly share our information because I I have a lot more that I want to chat with you about Pat you're an interesting guy and. I need to apologize because I'm two for two now in encroaching <laughs> on your agenda time, my friend. No problem. I, I really don't mean to do this, Pat. I'm sorry. Actually, you know, uh, we, we do have a scholarship winner thing real quick before uh, Pat's uh, yes. thing. So it's not quite Pat's time. So no worries, Hobie. <laughs> and we do have one more hand, E.G. Okay. White Swift. Ah, E.G. E.G., I just have to tell you that your son, Joey, emailed me, and he's an amazing guy. Well, thank you, and you are as well. Uh, my question to you on mentoring is, how do you know when your mentoring relationship is run its course and maybe needs to, either you need to change or you've gotten all the benefits that you, that you can? When it feels like someone knows what you know, uh, when, they're, when they're there, when you just know. There's not much more I can teach you. 
And then you say, I know other people who you need to talk to. Or if the relationship becomes weird and becomes awkward feeling, there's no need to push through with it. Doing your heart what you know is right. Awesome. Okay. Hobie, I do want to tell you this discussion of mentorship was pretty awesome. We had a, a panel, Elephant in the Dark, a generational panel that Desiree um, did it. earlier. Yay, I got the title right. Yay, the whole thing. And, uh, you know, part of what was discussed in there was the idea of mentoring, you know, in organizations and stuff. So great. I, I really appreciated that coming full circle <laughs> with your presentation. I'm thrilled I could do that. And yeah. I cannot wait to hear our scholarship presentation. Awesome. And um, our scholarship winner this year, as most of you guys already know, because this was done in um, at National, is, is our own interim secretary, Cassie Trosper. And so Michael Babcock interviewed her um, for this next little section. All right, it's time for the National Scholarship, uh, the Oregon winner of this. And I'm going to ask her, can you go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know what it is you won related to National? Well, my name is Cassie Trosper. I'm your current interim secretary for ACB of Oregon. And I applied earlier this year for the ACB, one of the ACB scholarships. And I ended up receiving the ACB National Scholarship for Oregon. It was a $2,500 scholarship that I received to help with some of my school stuff. Awesome. Well, congratulations on that. That is super exciting. And one of the questions that I am curious about is, Cassie, what is it that you are going to do with this scholarship? Well, I actually um, just transferred to a new college. I was a student at Southwestern Oregon Community College College starting um, this fall. Um, I did find out that I was eligible to transfer out a year earlier than we thought to the university of my choice, and I got accepted into Eastern Oregon University, and I'm going to be going into their Bachelor's of Applied Psychology program, and I will have a minor in Anthropology, Sociology, with a concentration in Social Welfare. That sounds super busy. Uh, Tell us a little bit about, is this your first experience with college? It is not. I actually, um, I spent three years in the military and I got out of the military in 2009. So once I got out of the military, I decided that I was ready to continue with college. Um, I didn't go to college right out of high school because I was a mom and it just didn't work out. Um, So I started at Everest College in Tacoma, Washington, where I received my certificate in medical assisting. And then once I moved to Oregon, I started at Southwestern Oregon Community College, where I had planned on going into the nursing program, but since my vision decided it wanted to rear its ugly head, I switched into their Associates of Medical Assisting program, and I graduated from there in 2020 with my Associates of Medical Assisting. As someone who has lost their sight while going through the college experience, it sounds like, what are some challenges you've faced with getting your degree and finishing the school goals that you have? Um, well, I think the biggest thing, I was going really good. I started at, um, at SWAC in 2013. Um, I was married. Um, I had Abby in 2014. 
Um, I was still a full-time student and a full-time wife, a full-time mom. Um, and then my late husband passed away suddenly in 2015. Well, I was eight months old. Um, at, at that time, I had, had lost a, a pretty dramatic amount of sight. Um, so I had just lost my husband. I had an eight-month-old, and I had to withdraw from school. And I was out of school until the summer of 2019 when I had met Carrie Muth, our president. She helped me get back into school, which was a total culture, culture shock because at that time, I couldn't just look at a piece of paper, couldn't just look at a computer screen without like adapt accessibility devices to help me. Um, so I think the biggest thing is just how I had to go about getting the help. Um, luckily, I was working with the Oregon Commission for the Blind and the Veterans Administration who got me a lot of devices and stuff to help me be successful in my education. So that way I didn't have to just completely give up on being able to go forward and do something with my life. What is it that you want to do after college? Um, well, my goal is I just started my bachelor's degree. Um, I'm also going to rope that into a master's degree in psychology. And after that, I'm hoping to get a good internship, um, whether it be with a VA or where I don't want to turn down opportunities. I want to leave myself open to the possibilities, but I would like to get a good internship and do some research with psychology and hopefully one day become a doctor of psychology and maybe be a clinical psychologist with VA or wherever life may take me. And Let's get ready to wrap it up here in a couple of minutes, but I'm curious, a $2,500 scholarship from National is is fairly substantial. How has this helped with your future plans? It actually has helped out a lot because I um, I did find out when I was started SWAP for my first fall term, and then I withdrew from SWAP and started my second fall term at Eastern. Um, I was on my last term for my veterans benefits. Um, I did apply for a scholarship extension for my veterans benefits for, I think it's another few months or a dollar amount, depending on what hits first. But um, it helps me, it's going to help me fill in that gap if I have anything that's not covered, whether it be books or books and books and supplies, fees. I mean, you know, college is expensive and things pop up when you least expect it to. So. Exactly. Now, uh, two more questions. The first of which is, can you tell people listening, what was the process like to apply and receive the scholarship? Oh, yeah, it is super easy. Um, the scholarship opens up, I believe it's either late December or early January. Um, you just go to the acb.org website and there's a scholarship um, tab. You use your, I don't, I had to create one. But you they may not have to create a username and password for that. I don't know if that's specific just for the scholarship portion. But you go through your application. Um, you do have to have two letters of recommendation. You have to upload a, cert- a certificate from your school showing that you are enrolled. And you have to upload um, a document from someone stating that you are visually impaired. Um, it does say that you have to be legally blind or fully blind. You, they ask different questions like, do you use a cane? Um, basically, your accessibility. Um, and you have to have a 3.0 GPA or higher. And they like you to be in school full time. I think depending on the scholarship, they make um, exceptions. Um, 
So yeah, it's really easy. You fill in, you put in your application and then they usually call to do interviews and you find out usually in May, late May, early June, if you received it. And I think there was 125 scholarship recipients this year. I'm correct. Wow. That, that is exciting. Now, if you were talking to a younger person who may be getting out of high school or getting close to getting out of high school and they are uh, dealing with a sight impairment, do you have any pieces of advice for that individual related to college or what would you say to that person? Um, I would probably, I mean, I wouldn't really use it any kind of advice towards their, their visual impairment. Um, I actually am kind of going through this, except for they aren't visually impaired. My oldest son actually graduated from high school this year. Um, he turns 18 next month. So that's really weird that we'll be going to college, not together, but at the same time. But, um, you know, I would tell them the same thing I tell him. It's like, don't let anything hold you back. I mean, just because you may be partially sighted, you may have no sight, let that drive you. Because a lot of people didn't think I would get to where I'm at. You know, they think, oh, she she has a hard time seeing. You know, there's no way she's going to be able to make it through college. And, you know, just don't let anyone tell you you can't. Like, you do you. And if people don't like it, then that's fine. They don't have to like it. <laughs> well, once again, Cassie, thank you so much for joining me today to chat about the scholarship that you won with National. And I hope you and everyone else enjoys the 2021 67th Annual National Convention of the American Council of the Blind of Oregon. Wonderful interview. So, Cassie, are you willing to answer questions if people want to raise their hand and ask questions? Yeah, I can. I can do that. <laughs> awesome. Cassie, it's Hobie. And I just want to say it's more of a comment than a question. I'm I'm beaming with pride here for all that you've done and uh, just really excited for what your future holds and, and, and all that you've done in the past. I also just want to say thank you so much for your service to this country. I really appreciate that. Thanks, Obi. And, and, you know, Cassie, I got to say, I really liked, you know, the advice. I've, I've always looked at that. You know, sometimes in our lives, we have those little pearls of wisdom given to us. And, um, you know, it's sometimes what we say to our kids and sometimes you know, the random things we say to people and plants those little seeds. So, so thank you. And, um, you, you know, I know you do really well in school and I'm just excited for your future. Yeah, well, yeah, it's a, it's a challenge, but yet we're getting there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you. Terry. Yeah. Hobie. This is Hobie. Before we, before we go on, I just I have a quick public service announcement. I have an opportunity <clears throat> with a client that I'm working with for someone on this call to do a quick, you know, 50 minute interview or so, not with me, but with my client and uh, earn a hundred dollar Amazon gift card. I was just reminded of this and I want to throw it out there to all of you. What I need is someone who lives alone, who is legally blind, who has a paid IRA account and uses IRA because this is all about studying a service like IRA. So if you live alone, you are legally blind and you have an IRA account, the first person to email me at my email address, Hobie, H-O-B-Y, at HobieWedler.com. That's H-O-B like boy, Y, 
W-E-D like David, L-E-R.com. The first who emails me, I will introduce to my client and you will get scheduled for an interview. Awesome. That's awesome. Little giveaway. I, I, don't, I don't quite live alone. My daughter lives here, so I'm disqualified. <laughs> well, you can, you know, you, 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 you can find ways to, ways to, if, if you do things alone, I don't know, whatever. Anyway, <laughs> anyone. All right. Okay. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks so much, Hobie. So, all right. Without much more ado, we're ready for our uh, little thing for somebody tonight's going to win a $200 Visa gift card. I'm going to ask 22 true-false questions regarding the history of, of uh, ACB of O uh, conversation that we've just ha- had. Uh, and, and that um, that I'll, I'll ask uh, um, uh, who believes that it's a true question, and then they will raise their hand if they think it's a true question. If they think it's false, then I'll then ask, who thinks it's false, and then they raise their hand. You won't raise your, you won't lower your hand. The uh, uh, the uh, will say say you know lower the lower the hands and the uh, uh, a- after we identify all, all the true respondents, we'll have the hands lowered. Then then I'll ask you to raise your hand if you fe- feel that uh, the statement was false. And then we'll lower the hands, and if you don't answer either. Uh, response the, that you'll just be recorded as a non-responsive, you know, and there's going to be quite a few people who just aren't participating in the, uh, uh, in this uh, true false thing. Make sense. Makes sense. Okay. Yeah. So, so I'll, I'll uh, begin the game now that number one, remember this is a true false question. The original name of the American Council for the Blind of Oregon was the Oregon Associated Council of the Blind. Crew, raise your hand. Let's see. We got Michael says true. Wes says true. Carrie says true. Um, 846, that is uh, Leonard. He says true. And he's... uh, Bobby and Samantha. People who, people who believe that the, that statement was false, oh. please raise your hand. Ah, okay. 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 Okay, I got it. The first elected state president of the organization was George Howeiler. True. Raise, raise, raise your hand. I'm good. And if you believe believe that this is a false statement, please raise your hand. You got them. Yes. Three is uh, uh, the the first na- uh, national organization that the Oregon Council for the the Blind joined was the American Council of the Blind. True. Raise your hand. Uh, and the uh, for the people who believe that that statement was false, raise your hands. Hmm. <laughs> Number four, in 1961, 
the organization with which we, we were affiliated demanded that we expel George Holweiler from our organization. The members of the Oregon Council agreed to do this so, so that we could remain uh, a member of the national organization. It's true. Raise your hand. This is a tough quiz. You got it, Sue? Yes. Uh, now, now, if you uh, believe that that's a false statement, uh, raise your hand. Number six. Number five. Number five. Hang on. Let's see. <laughs> okay, you're right. I'm trying, I'm, to <laughs> I'm trying to get finished. <laughs> yeah, Number really. five. <laughs> At our October 18th, 1964 convention, the membership vo voted to become an affiliate of the Lions International. If that's true, raise your hand. Now, raise your hand if you think that statement was false. Okay. Number six. In July of 1975, the ACB of Oregon hosted uh, the National Convention of the American uh, Council of the Blind. If that's true, raise your hand. Raise your hand if that statement was false. By 1967, the ACB of Oregon had 11 regional chapters. Okay, number seven, uh, answer, uh, uh, raise your hand if it's false. <laughs> number eight, the highest number of members ACB of Oregon ever reached was 200 individuals. Raise your hand if that's a true statement. Raise your hand if that's false. Perfect, okay. Number nine, one person held the ACB of Oregon president's office for 10 years. That person's name was Bev Rushing. Raise your hand if it's true. Raise your hand if, it was, if that was a false statement. Number 10, over the years, we've conducted a number of fundraising activities. We even ran a poker room in the 1990s. Raise, raise your hand, hand if that was a true statement. Raise your hand if it was a false statement. People remember what kind of gambling we did. Yeah. In the 1990s, we got uh, Governor Tom McCall to veto a bill that would have required an optometrist to be on the commission for, for the blind board. If that's true, raise your hand. Okay, raise your hand if it's false. Number 12, in January of 1967, the OCB uh, of Oregon, uh, let's see, no, it's the Oregon Council of the Blind, held a grand banquet in the Washington Hotel to ce celebrate Edna Williams' retirement as state librarian of the for the blind. If that's true, raise your hand. Okay, I got it. If that's false, raise your hand. The designated shooter law 
that allows someone to shoot, shoot a deer without a license holder present was ruled invalid in 1998. If that's true, raise your hand. Uh, if it's false, raise your hand. In March 1974, the American Council for the Blind of Oregon held a conference with a variety of state agencies and civic clubs to better coordinate services to blind individuals in the state of Oregon. If that's true, raise your hand. If it's false, raise your hand. Number 15. 15 individuals from the National Federation of the Blind of Oregon attended the meetings held in March 1974. If it's true, raise your, raise your hand. <laughs> if it's false, raise your hand. Number 16, the Oregon Cal Council of the Blind changed its name to the American Council of the Blind in 1995. Raise your hand if that's true. Uh, raise your hand if that's a false statement. Number 17, the first newsletter produced by, by uh, OCB was called The Reporter. If that's true, raise your hand. Raise your hand if that's a false statement. Number 18, uh, in the 90s, the ACB of o Oregon held adults, um, summer camps for adults, not adult summer camps, summer <laughs> camps for adults, Ooh. lasting as long as two weeks. If that's true, <laughs> raise your hand. Huh. Ooh la la. Yeah. <laughs> Number 19, the summer camp was funded by the Lion's Sight Foundation. If that's true. Raise your hand. You know, my hand's just stubborn because I'm used to being able to talk whenever I want to not raise my hand. Uh, that's, right. <laughs> that's, right. that's right. No comment. <laughs> that was okay. So, so raise your hand if that's a false statement. Number 20. The study to determine if the School for the Blind and the School for the Deaf was concluded in 1999. If that's true, raise your hand. If it's false, raise your hand. Several members uh, of the ACB of Oregon successfully saw, sought to get Howard Hall designated as a historic site. If that's true, Raise your hand. Okay, if it's, uh, if it's false, raise your hand. Okay, last question. Oh. Okay. Park created by the Salem Hospital on the site of the School for the Blind is named the Have Fun Park. If it's true, raise your hand. Raise your hand if that's a false statement. Okay. That's it for the uh, 
for for the true false part. All we have to do now is uh, figure out who who won. So let's see. We can go on to the uh, uh, to the next event, which is after. The next event is the after party. So are we going to find out who won tonight? If we do the next event, then your room's going to empty because. So, so Pat, are you going (laughs) to give us the answers to all the questions? Why don't you review the answers while I tally? Yeah, I shall. Yeah, Yeah, that would be good. Okay, hang on. (laughs) Okay. But, uh. Number one, the original name uh, of the American Council for the Blind of Oregon was the Oregon Associated Council for the Blind. That's true. The first elected president uh, of uh, the organization was George Howeiler. The na- national organization uh, the, that the Oregon Council for the Blind jo- joined says was the American Council for the Blind, and that's false. We joined the Federation first. In 1961, the organization with, uh, with which we affiliated demand, demanded that we expel George Horweiler from, uh, from our organization. Members of the of Oregon Council agreed to do, do this so that we could remain, remain in the national organization. No, we quit. We bailed. We said, Federation, you can, never mind. Uh, uh, at, uh, at our October 18th, uh, 1964 convention, the, the members vo- voted to become an affiliate with the Lions International. That's false. The, that's when we voted to uh, become a, an affiliate of the, uh, uh, of the council. In July 1975, ACB of Oregon ho- hosted a national convention of the uh, American Council for the Blind. That's false. It was 1972. By 1967, uh, ACB of Oregon had had a 11 regional chapters. That's true. The highest number of members ACB of Oregon ever reached wa- was 200 individuals. That's false. I think it was no 315. One... Correct. <laughs> I was just impressed when you said those statistics earlier. I was just like, wow. I mean, I knew it was in the 200s around two. 50 but i never knew it was over 300 so that's pretty impressive i i thought it was yeah okay one per person ha- held the uh uh acb of oregon uh president's uh, office for 10 years that person was bev rushing that was my homage to my mother-in-law uh and uh and that was false because that was james edwards absolutely <laughs> Number 10, over the years, we have conducted a number of fundraising activities. We even ran a poker room in, in the 1990s. That's false. It was a bingo parlor. Uh, in the, the 90s, we got, got Governor Tom, Tom McCall to veto a bill that would have required an optometrist to be on the Commission for the Blind. That, that's incorrect. Uh, it wasn't Tom McCall. And now I can't remember who it was. Okay. Anyway, number 12, January uh, uh, 60, uh, 1967, OCB held a grand, grand bang, banquet at the uh, Washington Hotel celebrating Edna Williams' retirement as, as librarian of, 
librarian uh, for the blind. That's true. The designated shooter law allowed someone to shoot, shoot a deer without a license holder present was, uh, was ruled invalid in 1998. That's false. It's still out there. Um, in March 1974, the uh, ACB of OO held a conference with a variety of state agencies, civic clubs, to better coordinate uh, services to blind individuals in the state of Oregon. That's true. Individuals from, from the uh, uh, National Federation uh, of the Blind of Oregon attended these meetings uh, in, in March of uh, 1994. That was true. They were there. Number 16, Oregon Council of the Blind cha changed its name to the Amer American Let's see, Oregon, Oregon Council of the Blind changed the name to the American Council for the Blind in 19, uh, 1995. That's false. That's the wrong year. That was 2000. Correct. It was 2000 when it... Uh, see, uh, those dadgum dates. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, I only did three dates. You know, yeah, the, the, and I missed all three of those. <laughs> <laughs> the, the first newsletter produced by o, OCB was called The Reporter. That's false. It was called The Bulletin. Um, in uh, the 90s, ACB of Oregon held uh, summer camps for adults lasting as long as two weeks. That was true. 19. The, the summer camp was funded by, by the Lions Sight Foundation. That was true. The stu study to determine if the School for the Blind and the School for the Deaf should, should uh, uh, let's see, determine if School for the Blind and School for the Deaf should, should be uh, uh, combined uh, in uh, what that was, uh, concluded in uh, 1999. That's false. It was later than that. Several members uh, of the ACB uh, of Oregon successfully saw, sought to get, get uh, Howard Hall designated as a historic site. That's true. The uh, city of Salem killed it. You know, but hey. Uh, and then uh, number 22. Last one, the park created by, by the uh, Salem Hospital uh, on the side of the School for the Blind is named uh, the Have Fun Park. Nobody voted uh, true on that one. Everyone voted false, and that's true. No, no, I'm sorry. Oh, it's it false. is correct. It is correct that it is false. Let's play place. Yeah. It's, let's play place. <laughs> I'm it's so even confused. dumber. <laughs> Okay, are you ready for the results? Yay, drum roll. Yay, drum roll. We have a tie. <laughs> so I better get that bonus question out, Pat. Well, we were okay. gonna we were, we were gonna draw draw a name. We do have um Darian's hand up. Yep. So my question is, I you know, I knew that the I think it was 15, the one about us changing our name from the Oregon Council of the Blind to the American Council of the Blind. Um, it was also false because 
we changed it to the American Council of the Blind of Oregon, correct? <laughs> That's correct. Both, both of them make it false. The date and, and the fact that, uh, the, that, it, that we didn't become, Oregon didn't become the American Council for the Blind, uh, of the Blind. The, that, uh, that it should have been American Council of the Blind of Oregon. Thank you. So this, so you're right. The statement was was wrong on two points. Okay. 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 Who's tie? Who's tie? Ready? Okay. We have Jean Marie Moore and Darian Slayton Fleming both at nineteen. Those are the two. Wow. Top numbers and second place uh, with number with is Marja Byers at 18. And then we have about four people that have 17 tied for what would you say third place? Okay. I've got, uh, uh, wrote down the two names and I'm go going to ha have uh, uh, our nine-year-old Kylie, grand granddaughter, Kylie, uh, Allie. Oh, uh, okay. yeah, Allie. The, the she, she's going to draw the na name, okay? I gotta go get her. Okay, Allie, we're gonna need your help. Come on. Yay, we get another young uh, junior age participant. Yay! Junior one. Yep. <laughs> okay. I need Jean, you. Jean Marie has her hand raised. Okay. okay, Allie, say hi. 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 Yay. Okay, let's see. Puller. Do we want to let uh, Jean Marie ask a question? Yeah. Hi, um, Sue, I sent you to text. Do you get that I voted true for number one? Um, you know, Jean Marie, it's kind of late to. I, well, no, I sent her a text right when it happened. Okay, but that's not how we were voting, though. I wasn't able to look at it while I was tallying. Yeah. So, okay. so, but you, you know, your name and Darian. So I know drum roll. Yep. We'll see who, which one Allie picked out of the bin. Okay. You selected Jean Marie. Jean Marie. Woo. <laughs> Yay. 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 Good job. Wow. Okay, Sue, I want to know, but I don't want to know how sad was my score. Oh, your score was 13. Oh, that's so bad. <laughs> I should not pass. <laughs> the, the four that tied, let's see, I said uh, Marja was 18. She, she did really well. Um, the ones that tied at 17 was John Hamill and Leonard Kokel and Sharon Orchard and uh, Tyann. Wow. And Tyane and John well. were, newer, were newer to our group. Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah. I'm impressed. Wow. I'm impressed, you guys. You did very good. Wow. And we good had job. One, two. We had a, a 14. That was uh, Bobby. Um, and then one, two, three. Uh, three 13s did well there. That was Carrie and uh, Michael Babcock. and. Uh, Wes Brown, 
May all of you did well. You guys. Yeah, that was tough. Paid you know, attention. The, those dicks made it, you just made it tricky, Mr. Professor. Yeah. Well, hey, I'm used to te teaching uh, high level college students. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a few years since I was in college. So there you That's go. Right. Yeah. I would have studied better if I was at a college test. <laughs> well, congratulations, G. Marie. You'll be getting that $200 Visa gift card. And thank you, Pat and Sue, for all the work you did in this and um, lots of great information for all of us to know and absorb. And obviously, I didn't absorb enough, but. <laughs> You're welcome. That was fun. And, yeah, yeah. And thanks, Allie, for all your help. Yep. <laughs> she said you're welcome. I heard her. That's so sweet. All right. So that that concludes these um, activities. So the next thing up is the after hours party. Woo! Um, and that's over in our um, ACB of Oregon Zoom room right after this. And Desiree and Tyann will be our hostesses this evening. <laughs>